Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see guests and myself give or take an important monster in movie, literature, folklore, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films or folklore itself. Today's episode, we'll be talking to two of my favorite contemporary genre-bending horror authors, whose works are filled with creatures great and small. Fans of the show can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Google, and iTunes, and also follow us on Twitter at HFTDeepDive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes on genre film with Bylands and Nightmare on Film Street and Looper, and I've co-edited two books on monster media, Alien Philosophy and Stranger Things in Philosophy, as well as having written academic chapters on topics like The Devil, Frankenstein, Jurassic Park, and others. I'm pleased to introduce our special guests. Nathan Ballingrud is the award-winning author of a number of novellas and collections of short stories, including North American Lake Monsters and Wounds, Six Stories from the Border of Hell. Recently, you can find adaptations of several of his works in the film Wounds and the series Munsterland, both available on Hulu. Sean Hamill's first novel is uh, A Cosmology of Monsters is a Goodreads Choice Award finalist and was Thanks voted one of the me. best books of the year by Esquire, the New York Public Library, and others. Thank you both very much for stopping by the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's a real treat for me because, Sean, I came to your work uh, more recently, but uh, I love the novel and and uh, it's it's a blast to read. And Nathan, you know I've been a fan of yours for a while of your work. So this is a real treat. Yeah, we did an interview uh Sometime back. Mm-hmm. Yep. The adaptation was really good, but we can maybe, we, we may or may not touch base on that later. I'll briefly introduce both of your works. Uh, you know, Nathan, your stories are, are so wide ranging in theme and, and the specificity of what creatures are embodied in them. Uh, so here, here's, here's my take at it. I'll do my best. Nathan Ballengrude's stories are both stunningly personal and often shockingly horrifying and they highlight the reality of the monsters both within and without. The stories cover a variety of the aspects of the human experience uh, alongside a menagerie of monsters with often working class people struggling through real issues against forces beyond their control. In Sean Hamill's debut novel, Cosmology of Monsters, the Turner family has a history of being both preoccupied with horror, the family's long built and run the haunted house, The Wandering Dark, while dealing with their own complex string of tragedies and family issues. At the center of it is Noah Turner, who sees monsters, but unlike his family, Noah lets them in. Both of these works, I, I have questions for, you know, for both of you and I'll alternate and then for you specifically. But the first thing I really wanted to do was to discuss the origins of, because Sean, this is your first novel and it's obviously very, you know, creature centric, monsters in the title. It's, um, <laughs> it's very deep in the bones. And monsters are often uh, a central element of many of your stories, Nathan. So I wanted to kind of talk of first about maybe origins and inspirations. My first question is to kind of get at why both of you became writers and why specifically 
you were inspired to write about monsters or to use them in your stories? Maybe start with with Nathan. Uh, sure. Um, I, I don't feel like I, you know, I've I was writing stories and uh, for as long as I can remember. You know, uh, just as a little kid, I would I would I would write you know little my version of little stories down, uh, and I, I've always kind of continued doing that. And uh, even uh, when I was trying to, you know, somebody would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? The answer was always, you know, fill in the blank, like an astronaut or a veterinarian or a policeman and a writer. I mean, whatever, whatever it was, a writer was always uh, appended to it. And, uh, and so it was never really a, a choice to do it. It was just something that I kind of always did. And I think the same thing is true with monsters. I don't think it, I never made a decision to write about them. It's just, I've always thought about them. I've always been fascinated by them. I've always loved them uh, when I encountered them in, in movies or, or, or books. And uh, I can't imagine not writing about monsters. It's just, uh, it's just, they live in my heart. And so, and so they'll always be on the page. As someone that spent his free quarantine time starting a monster podcast, I definitely get that. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Sean, what about you? Um, I mean, as far as the writing goes, um, I think it was pretty similar to what Nathan said. I, you know, from for as far back as I can remember, I wanted to make things and the, the things I wanted to make changed. Um, when I was really young, I thought I wanted to be a comic book artist and a filmmaker. And what I kind of gradually figured out as I went through all of these um, creative hobbies was that the part I liked best of any creative endeavor was the, writing the story. I wasn't good with actors. I can't draw where the damn, but you know, people seem to like the stories that I would write for things, even if they didn't like anything else. Um, so I, it, it just sort of evolved from there. Um, as far as monsters go, it's actually kind of, um, Interesting because uh, until this book, I actually hadn't really written uh, in a genre before. Um, uh, I had another novel that that got agented but never sold. That was more uh, realist, and um, I, I don't know that the you know I've always loved monster stories. Alien is my you know favorite movie. I've actually got the xenomorph on the background of my computer. I'm looking at it right now. Um, Love it. And universal horror movies. Uh, so I, I, I always loved them. Um, so, I, and I, I think when I started working on cosmology, um, the monsters were originally only supposed to be metaphorical, but as I sort of got deeper into the story, they became uh, more than subtext. They became text and uh, it felt right uh, to me to, to follow that. And so, um, I was really delighted to find myself writing, um, you know, uh, my version of a horror novel, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so, so I, I kind of lucked into it, I guess, as a, as a lifelong fan of horror, but, um, somebody who hadn't written much of it. Yeah. I, I, I definitely feel that it's funny for me because I'm working on a screenplay and I'm outlining another one, both of which are in this sort of horror vein. As a kid, I didn't really watch a lot of horror, but I loved The Twilight Zone. I loved sightings on the sci-fi channel. I loved cryptids. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and so, of course, Bigfoot was a huge thing. (laughs) 
was a kid. I, I watched the hell out of sightings when I was a kid. I'm right there with you. Anytime I could catch it, I was glued to the TV. Oh, it was my jam. Like that and the X-Files were my <laughs> yeah. staples. Um, so yeah, it's kind of something that, that for me was, uh, I had a, uh, a, a lifelong preoccupation with the themes that became a lot more honed lately in the last eight ish years, maybe. So are there any particular genre works that, that you turn to, uh, for at the beginning for inspiration? Maybe in this case, start with you, Sean. Yeah, I mean, it, at the very beginning of my book, uh, you know, there, there are two quotes. Uh, one is from Ray Bradbury talking about the silent film actor Lon Chaney, and the other is a quote from H.B. Lovecraft's most famous story, uh, The Call of Cthulhu. And um, I don't remember how exactly those wires got crossed in my head where... Um, I decided that Lovecraft would sort of become a foundational influence on the book because um, I had never read much of him before. But I, at the time I was starting this novel, I had just kind of started poking my toes into the water uh, with Lovecraft. And that particular passage uh, that's at the start of the book about dreaming of cities and this idea of Cthulhu communicating with the the artists and the poets and the you know of the world through dreams and imagination um i i thought was so potent especially because this really the novel sort of starts as you know a um you know the dream of this man to kind of uh that the family ends up living out right the 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 father you know who wants to create the haunted house um and so this idea of these dark forces working through dreamers um really, um, you know, I'd say that was probably the biggest thing, uh, genre wise that, that really hit was working my way through Lovecraft and sort of that cosmic nihilism. Um, I really liked, although Lovecraft found it horrifying, I find it liberating. Um, uh, you know, I find it wonderful. It doesn't terrify me. It, it, you know, it makes me happier, um, to think that nothing really matters. Uh, but you know, it, to each their own. Uh, so I, I think that those were the main uh, things. And as I wrote the book, I tried to do more of my homework and dig deeper because until then, my main um, horror reading had been like Stephen King, who I loved, but you know, I had never really gotten, I'd never read Dracula. I'd never read Frankenstein. I'd never read Ghost Story. You know, there were so many um, books that I was like, I need to do my homework, you know? So I really got to, it was it, that was also part of the fun of writing the book was having an excuse to really like dig into Shirley Jackson for the first time because I'd only ever read short stories I'd never read Hill House before you know um, mm -hmm. and I, I I hope that some of that stuff came comes through in the the final product uh, I'm sure it'll be bleeding out in my future works one way or another absolutely um, and Nathan were you going to say something earlier no I was just agreeing with him especially about his point about uh, finding. Uh, what horrified Lovecraft to be, you know, pleasant, you know, a liberating thought. I'm, I'm absolutely of the same mind as uh, as Sean is on that. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because uh, I I share both, and this is why I I like both of your work so much. I really share that sort of Lovecraft for uh, that that love for Lovecraft and cosmic horror, and I I think in part because I think that perspective is so interesting that 
that reality is nothing close to what we perceive it to be. And that, yeah, there's just something decentering in a really intellectually stimulating way for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I would I would completely agree with that. And one one other uh, thing just occurred to me. The other thing that Lovecraft stuff was really good at and that cosmic horror uh, really seems to excel at is dread. More so than scares, than terror, but like just that sense that something is wrong, that there's something bigger that you just can't see um, mm -hmm. uh, that really appealed to me whenever I was writing uh, cosmology and has... Um, you know, as I've studied more of weird fiction, I've gotten to know what a vibrant, modern, weird scene there is actually out here. So like, you know, like John Lang and Laird Bear and Nathan's books, you know, all this great stuff that I, you know, am now playing catch up on. Mm -hmm. And for uh, for Nathan, for you, uh, what sort of when you when you started writing in the in the vein that you do, were there any particular genre works that 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 you drew from or that really kind of sparked you? Um, in a conscience. In a conscious sense, I don't think so. Uh, I was just drawing from uh, what um, what I had read my whole life, and I started out reading, uh, you know, like so many people uh, of my generation, you know, Stephen King and Peter Straub, and Rice, and uh, and you know, I read, I just kind of read as much of that as I could get my little hands on when I was a kid, and uh, and then as a teenager, I discovered Clive Barker, who just mm -hmm. just changed. It just turned my world upside down. Uh, it was just—it was a completely new way of uh, looking at uh, and thinking about horror fiction and what could mean. And um, it just—it—it—it—it it, it, uh, it just threw open, you know, all the windows, you know, in my head. And um, and but when I started writing, I hadn't—I uh, was in my 30s when I started writing it seriously. And. Um, I had gone a long time without reading a lot of genre fiction. Uh, I just kind of kind of burnt out on it uh, in my 20s for a while, and I spent many years just reading, uh, you know, contemporary realism. And uh, I found a lot of writers there that, uh, that really spoke to me. And uh, and so I think when I wrote the first stories uh, in my uh, kind of like professional in a professional capacity. Uh, I was thinking more about uh, writers like uh, Hemingway and Richard Ford and Annie Proulx. Those are the ones that were like really in my head. And uh, and the fact that they intersected with with um, with monsters was, uh, I think, <clears throat> a reflection of the uh, of the fact that you know monsters made up the foundation of my literary you know experience uh, as as a as a kid and as a teenager and as a young person in my twenties. That was that's what filled me up. And so uh, once I started trying to uh, write stories, taking some inspiration from the modern realists, uh, the monsters were waiting right there to, uh, to move into them as well. And, uh, and uh, after that book was, uh, was finished, I started writing more. I felt a lot more freedom to really kind of indulge in, in, in the monsters much more overtly. And, uh, and in that case, I was drawing more from a kind of a more in, in for the second book, I was drawing much more uh, from a kind of a more playful monstrous aesthetic, like uh, Mike Mignola and Charles Adams were, were big influences on the, on those books or on that book rather. Wonderful. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I get that kind of, I, I similarly grew up in terms of reading. I caught up to my, on my horror classics uh, much later relatively but I, I did have a fair share of 
stuff with monsters in it because for some reason when i was in high school i was really into reading epic poems <laughs> like your beowulf <laughs> and your uh gilgamesh uh the Eddas, the, yeah. the the sagas <laughs> mm-hmm. right right uh i have a a buddy in honors actually lent me his copy of of the sagas and i totally didn't give it back <laughs> I, I owe him something. <laughs> I don't know what. A question for for you, Nathan. Your your work is uh, particularly interesting because a lot of authors write, and there will be a sort of seeming specialty of the type of entities that they use to tell their stories or to embody their their um, the issues they're trying to make a point about. But your work's really interesting because you. Uh, draw upon a lot of different things both from you know common ones like vampires or werewolves and then less common ones ones that you're inventing and i kind of wanted to know where you found the inspiration for such varied entities and then also kind of how you decide what best fits with the story you're trying to tell or does the story come first and then you find it just kind of naturally evolves or what your process is like well i feel like i'm so kind of figuring it out myself in some ways the um some a lot of the stuff doesn't happen uh you know in a way that i'm sitting up you know in the pilot's chair making decisions a lot of this is feels uh very much like i'm uh sort of just taking what i'm receiving and that sounds maybe a little silly but uh but it feels like that you know once i finished well the stories in north america lake monsters are you know the monsters operate uh, in a more like metaphorical capacity often, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm <clears throat> I'm using um, I'm using them uh, well. I'm using more uh, standard kinds of monsters. That's the the vampire and the werewolf, uh, you know, the zombie, etc. And and it was fun. It was interesting to use those uh, traditional monsters uh, as as. Uh, as ways of getting at uh, a character's, you know, emotional issues, which were not related to the monster. Um, you know, the monsters are almost, uh, in most cases, were were sort of like side elements to sort of cast a light onto onto the protagonist's real issue, which was something else entirely. Mm-hmm. And uh, and once I finished that book and was getting, you know, starting to write the stories that would make up the second one, I just found that I was kind of done with doing that at least for a while. I didn't want to do that again. I didn't want to be, you know, the guy who, whose stories you could predict because they followed a particular pattern or they always did a certain trick. You know, that's not, that's not interesting to me. And so I wanted to write a, uh, just different kinds of stories, uh, that played with those tools in a, or used those tools in a, uh, in a different way. And, um, and so that meant that this, that, uh, Well, I don't know what that meant. <laughs> the stories came out a lot different, and uh, and um, that was probably the extent of the decision making was just that I was not going to do the same thing again, and uh, and beyond that, it's just like you know the the way I kind of imagine it is I'm just I'm just dropping a well or a bucket down a well rather, and uh, and I will take whatever comes up, and I don't always know what that's going to be, and uh, and and I kind of like that. It's scary in some ways, and it's it makes me doubt myself a lot because um, 
you know, when I write a story like Skull Pocket to the Butcher's Table, after I've already kind of, uh, you know, gained some readership for writing much more serious stories, uh, you know, there's a lot of self-doubt that comes to write, comes with writing something that different and that kind of, uh, you know, um, well, kind of like over the top. Um, but at the same time, it's more interesting uh, as a writer. It might make it more difficult to uh, to kind of get a cohesive identity uh, for readers or for marketers. But uh, artistically, it's a lot more satisfying for me. Yeah, I, I definitely get that. Because like when it comes to to the uh, the stuff that I'm writing right now, the the episode that I decide to book, the stuff that I write for Forbes, at, for none of these things, I'm really uh, externally really told what to do. It's all just, oh, what's actually inspiring me right now? And I, I, I feel personally that's the, the better wellspring for creativity. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, um, it was something I actually struggled with after I finished Cosmology, you know, because I'd written this book and I didn't have anything else in the can when I sold it. So it took me a long time to sort of get out of my own head enough to be able to find out what I was interested in instead of trying to guess like what my agent might like or what my editor might like or what readers of Cosmology would expect. And now, you know, the thing I'm writing, I feel like is, um, you know, very artistically satisfying, like Nathan said. Um, but it's also a little bit of a departure from cosmology. So, you know, there, there's some nervousness about that because that book was weird enough to market, you know, to begin with. So I, I, I completely understand where you guys are coming from. With Sean, did you, do you, did you feel pressure after cosmology to, uh, to, to write something similar? Yes, but. Um, you know, to, to, to adhere to a genre rather than go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I did, but that was put on me internally. Nobody in my at my publisher, nobody, um, you know, it, right. in my my editorial circle or anything was saying that. I, I think for me, it was like this book was a departure for me to begin with from what I had normally done, and it's you know got sort of a weird hybrid genre thing going on anyway um, that that already makes it kind of a tough sell for like you know certain types of uh, either horror fans or literary fiction fans um, and so like I was sort of uh, yeah I was creatively deadlocked for like two years and now part of that you know I was spending um, you know, uh, editing the book. So, you know, I spent a year in edits on the book. We really fine tuned it. Um, but I, I remember having conversation after conversation with my agent where I'm like basically asking for direction and he's subtly trying to get <laughs> the idea. Like I can't, that's not my part of the job, kid. You know, it's, you're, you go. Yeah. Oh, that talk. sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, short answer. Yeah. Definitely. I had a question for you, Sean. One of the things that I find so fascinating about cosmology is it's it's almost like, I mean, how I would describe it is as a sort of Lovecraftian take on a fairy tale in a way. I was kind of wondering, that's a really unique take. And I was wondering how that came about. Oh, that's a really good question. I... It, it all developed uh, organically. It, none of it was really planned. Um, the, the story I kind of figured out as I was writing it. Um, 
And it definitely, I think as I realized that I was sort of writing um, a romance, you know, I think, uh, and that, um, you know, there was more of like an element of like dark wonder and gothic romance to it, you know, more like a Guillermo del Toro, like what, you know, like Shape of Water or something, although that wasn't out yet, but like that same vibe. Um, it, It felt, it felt appropriate. I don't know. It felt right for the story, even if I had a hard, still have a hard time sort of justifying it. But I was also sort of interested in, um, you know, in the, the ideas of like the more traditional ideas of like, you know, fairy, the, you know, the, and the sheet and all of that, um, which I was also sort of looking into as I was writing the book, I was just, you know, hoovering up mythology and stuff, you know, or, um, going down rabbit holes of like, well, maybe the creatures are like this or maybe they're like that. And it sort of just emerged naturally. And then my agent and then my editors kind of helped me hone it uh, into something that was maybe a little bit more specific. Mm-hmm. I think that the fairy tale aspect of it sort of um, just speaks more to like m- my own preferences as a storyteller. Like I'm more interested in relationships and um, awe than I am in like really scaring the shit out of somebody. I don't think that's where my, you know, my talents lay. Oh, uh, apologies if I'm not allowed to swear on this. I should have asked. You're good. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, I, I, that's probably not a very satisfying answer, but, um, well, okay. I can, I can point to one thing uh, that was sort of a turning point actually, which was, um, when I was designing the monster, it, it started out originally as much more bat-like, but then I realized like that would be more frightening to a small child. So kind of going more of a canine direction, like something you could hug or pet, you know, that could be like a a friend um, really helped. And, but I didn't want it to be naked. So I, you know, I put it in this robe and I didn't even think about it, but it was a red robe. And so of course you've got little red riding hood, which, has a red hood and also a big bad wolf in it. So it's kind of like I stuck, you know, I was like, Oh, I just stuck the big, big bad wolf inside of little red riding hoods cloak and made it a character. So I think that definitely um, informed it in some way that I can't really articulate very well. No, I I think that's wonderful. It actually leads into um, the kind of the next area of topics I wanted to get into is the, uh, uh, the sort of origins for, the choices of monsters and, the, and and what they uh meant when you chose them and that's that's perfect that's a perfect answer to the question <laughs> awesome <laughs> good job preempting my question thank you that's wonderful and uh kind of while we're on the topic of the the choice of entities the city is an interesting element in the novel because once it seems to have desires and goals it's clearly like an eldritch sort of space but it's it's treated as though it's um almost like a, effectively a beast in its own right or a god in its own right or something like that it's right. hard to describe um where did that come into the story for you and, and what sort of made that central um well i think the i guess to to, to put it in simplest uh, terms my favorite scene in alien is when they first go into the derelict spacecraft and 
you have no idea, especially whenever I was watching it on VHS in the 90s, you know, I, you don't really know what you're looking at inside that spaceship. And there's this giant astronaut with a burst out chest and you have no idea what species it is. And it never comes up again until Prometheus, which, you know, we won't talk about. Um, but I, I, that sort of like, there's something to me very interesting and compelling about these large empty spaces, you know, places that should normally be full of people and aren't and sort of taking on a life of their own. And I'm sure that was influenced to some degree by uh, Thomas Ligotti's story uh, that I think it's pronounced Vastarian, which also deals with um, a sort of a dream version of a city, um, you know, that that's conjured out of a book. Um, and I, so I, I think that that just sort of is where that's where it springs from. Um, also, the idea, you know, you've got the haunted house, which, uh, you know, the original idea for this novel came from me getting to kind of just uh, as part of some other project I was working on, take a tour of a haunted house that was out of season. So I just got to wander around the sets and look at the lighting and everything. And when it was empty. I mean, I think they're, I, I'm terrified by haunted house attractions either way, but there was something really interesting and eerie about how empty it was. So I guess in some ways the city is just that uh, sort of writ large um, and given sort of a malevolent, um, unknowable um, consciousness of its own, its own agenda, its own, um, you know, like you said, desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, the the reiteration of like it has your scent, like oh, it's it's on to you. You're you're doomed. Yeah, yeah, it wants something from them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nathan, I, North American Lake Monsters is, is, is as a, as a collection very dear to me, and a lot of those um, stories live uh, rent free in my brain. These <laughs> modern ones. <laughs> um, and uh, so. I mean, there's a, there's a couple particular stories that I kind of want to talk about your inspirations. Uh, it was kind of adapted in Monsterland, but the the skin wearers and you go where it takes you. Yeah, it was so such a shocking visual to me when I read it, and it's so thematically it it like works for me. And I I wondered how you um sort of came up with that idea. Oh, um, I don't recall specifics. I mean, a lot of the stuff just kind of develops organically as the as a story develops, uh, I tend to be the kind of writer who's just sort of feeling his way through the dark. You know, I feel like my, my fingers are reaching out and kind of groping along the wall and I don't really know what's coming a lot of the time. Um, I, you know, that story was about, was about, you know, uh, regretting your life and wishing you had a new one. And so it was just a kind of a simple metaphor, uh, in the most basic sense to, uh, to put on a new skin. Uh, and I wanted, you know, when, when that scene happens where, uh, where Tony, the protagonist, um, sees this for the first time, uh, it was important to me that, uh, and this is something I think that, you know, is important to me in, in most of the stories that I write that the, uh, what is on the surface of violence and bloody act is, uh, is perceived as something beautiful. And, uh, and I think that was to me the thing that I had to sell, uh, if a story was going to work, um, you know, that him, uh, the, the man, you know, pulling the, pulling the knife over his scalp and, and peeling away his, uh, his skin, uh, was, was a, 
was a was a beautiful thing as far as she was concerned, mm-hmm. and it had to be had to be written that way. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that was. I don't know if I'd call it the inspiration, but that was the intent, and that was the kind of the, the guiding principle of that story was the violence had to be lovely, uh, or at least perceived as lovely by by the characters, and um, and uh, that's a kind of a an aesthetic that uh, that informs a lot of the stories, especially in that book, but I think even in the and uh, other stories too. Uh, you know, there's a to me horror and beauty are are you know they're uh they're they're two sides of the same coin they're they they belong together and uh i you know like Sean was talking earlier about he doesn't you know you know the idea of being scary and frightening is not his is not uh you know his his first goal and uh, i think the same is true for me it's like i i i don't write to be to be uh to be scary mm-hmm. you know i think i think horror is beautiful and i think even the term horror sometimes i'm uncomfortable with because it's it's uh it doesn't seem to be a wide enough term um sure. to describe the kinds of things that I would like the stories to to uh convey um and I know that's a rabbit hole you know definitions of 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 the word and and that's for the taxonomists of literature this is a deep dive podcast rabbit holes are welcome <laughs> Yeah, that's not one I've never I've ever had a lot of patience for because I, it, it seems to me beside the point. It seems to me you know that's that's an interesting topic for uh, people who are in, interested in the, the history of the of the genre, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a completely valid uh, topic, but it's ne- it's to me it's always been beside the point. It's like that's that's not something I I really am interested in exploring. But um, but but I do sometimes feel like the word is a little too constraining for I don't know for for my purposes. Sure. And um, uh, yeah, so I think I I think I wandered off your actual question. The inspiration is something I can't really recall, but that was the intent. No, that's that's absolutely fair. It's kind of an uh, an interesting aside as well because I mean, you know, this is this is a monster centric podcast, not necessarily like a monster movie, whatever. But it's it's, it's definitely about getting into the, the the deep underpinnings of these creatures that are, you know, in our culture, in our films, in our literature. And even though those are often elements of horror film, television novels, I wouldn't consider this a horror podcast, you know, even though it's horror adjacent. Yeah. Um, for very similar reasons. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's an important distinction. And I think that that kind of you know uh, plays into how monsters are uh, are conveyed. You know, they they are not always, uh, especially now, uh, they're not always conveyed as the uh, as intrusive forces, uh, which are danger, which are antagonistic is a better word to uh, to the protagonist. Right. Sometimes monsters are engines of transcendence. Um, sometimes they are uh, they are the thing that. Uh, that helps somebody break free from a kind of confining status quo. Sometimes the protagonist is the monster. You know, I, I think a lot of people who, uh, who read this kind of fiction probably feel monstrous themselves in many ways. And, uh, I think there have been many examples throughout history where, where the monster is the most sympathetic character in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, a classic Frankenstein is an obvious example where, Absolutely. Yeah, the uh the the Frankenstein's monster is 
is frightening, is different, is visually very iconic, but not really the villain of, of definitely not the villain of the novel. And I would say not really the villain of the film. Oh yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I would completely agree. Yeah. So it, it's just a fascinating thing to think about. Cause like, cause for me, uh, I've always been so fascinated with the monstrous because it's not to me inherently, I mean, yeah, there, there's frightening elements of it. And you know, if, a what, like a straight up werewolf showed up at my door, I would <laughs> my family that's not a question however there's also something empowering about these you know the 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 magic of an entity that can do things that we can't comprehend and that takes forms that we can't comprehend and that that you know has a history we don't know right and then inspire awe you know a kind of a kind of like a a holy wonder almost Um, and, uh, this is, uh, Del Toro taps into this, mm-hmm. uh, a lot in his films. Yes. And, uh, and speaking of, uh, you know, Frankenstein, and the, if you look back at the old universal, uh, uh, movies, the only two movies I would argue that actually have villains or, well, anyway, or the monsters are villains are the invisible man and, uh, and Dracula. Yep. Uh, and none of the other staple universal horror films are the monsters the real villains absolutely no yeah because in um in wolfman larry talbot is is a victim he is when he finds what he's doing out of his control he is terrified Mm -hmm. and like frankenstein is horrified by actions that he does when he doesn't know his own strength or when he's reacting to fear right and the mummy is motivated by love Mm -hmm. and and everybody sympathizes with the creature from the black lagoon it's uh yeah they're not they're not the villains absolutely it's my favorite it's a bit of an aside, but one of the films from fairly recent years that I critically, it was received with a mixed bag, but I really like is the 2014 Godzilla because I feel like it really got Godzilla in that scene where the Godzilla first emerges from the sea and the camera's at wave level and you're just sort of tilting up and watching this entity slowly rise for minutes to the point where you're dwarfed and it's just, it, it, it actually really got to the awe that we would feel if we experienced something like that. And it just happened. Right. And that's, and that's where the monsters are, 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 they take on a kind of a spiritual role, a kind of like a, a, a sense of uh, transcendent wonder. Absolutely. I was, I was going to say I, that Godzilla movie was directed by Gareth Edwards, right? Who also directed Rogue One. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think. And oh, sorry, and monsters, yes. <laughs> and monsters, yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's the that's the one. Yeah, um, yeah. He's so good at that 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 sense of scale and awe. Like you know, whether you like Rogue One or not, like he made the Death Star feel bigger than I had ever imagined. You know, on the screen, like he knows how to do scale. And same for Godzilla. Yo, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, I actually really do like Rogue One because you get a sense of the um, uh, of the importance and the monumentalness of what has to be done. And you feel so like the, you and the protagonist feel so small by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. There's a desperation to it that really um, adds a, a new flavor to rewatching the original movie. It, it, it makes it more interesting to ponder after the fact. So it's, in my book, the best kind of a prequel, I guess, that actually um, really deepens uh, the meaning of the original. 
Yeah, I, I feel like it's one that actually like adds something which prequels often don't. Right. Um, oftentimes they tell you where you've already been and you're like, oh, I don't. When I want to do Star Wars films, I wanted sequels, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to go new places. That was what made Star Wars so much fun to begin with. Absolutely. Um, sorry, I got us off track. <laughs> no, it's great. It's all it, it's all wonderful. Nathan, I also wanted to ask you, uh I know this this won an award you may have talked about too much and and might resent me for asking, but uh the it's so <laughs> interesting what you did with Angels in the month or quote unquote angels and the monsters of heaven. And I wanted you to talk also like a little bit about that story and sort of your inspiration. Uh, well, that story is about when I started writing it, the idea was to write about somebody doing something um, about how best to say this. The, uh, I had the, I kind of had the closing image of that story in my mind uh, when I went in, I knew that the guy, the protagonist, would have a dream of his uh, of his son uh, dead, you know, maybe dead in a, in a in a in a gruesome way, and it would be a liberating dream. Uh, it would be a dream that he welcomed and that set him uh, that set him free. It would be a, a the, uh, the going back to the idea of beauty and horror. That the idea was that that final image would be one of peace and not horror. And uh, and so th- my goal writing the story was to get to that point and make it work in that way. Um, and uh, and uh, you know I was a new father at that time, and uh, and so the idea of you know small children in peril was uh, was something I could not stop thinking about. And in some ways, that story was a way to sort of uh, deal with that. Uh, I think that fear that all new parents have. Uh, of something terrible happening to your uh, to your child, and uh, in there was a there's a scene in that story where he's just uh, he's just haunted by the idea that so the story for those who haven't read it the story is about you know a man whose son is kidnapped and it's because he fell asleep it's his fault and uh, he doesn't know his son's fate and so he's haunted by the idea of his son wherever he is. Uh, waiting for his dad to come rescue him and uh, knowing that he absolutely can't. He's powerless to do it. And uh, and so it was about, I, I wanted to write a story. It's a, I guess it was about how you have to do something terrible in order to, uh, to be free of something. And the terrible thing they had to do was to basically uh, forget him, to let, not forget him, but to let him go. And to uh, accept that they were never going to get an answer to his fate, and I think that's a kind of a, a psychologically brutal thing to do, and uh, and that was what that dream was at the end. How did you uh, come up with the idea for the? Because the story, you know, these these entities uh, that seem like angels are, are are present, but it leaves it really up in the air. Cause they're, they're, they're different than what we would think. How did you think of, of their attributes? That always fascinates me. Uh, well, I've always been kind of fascinated with the idea of angels, but I've always been fascinated with them as, uh, as these, uh, terrifying, uh, awe-inspiring creatures. And, you know, the ones in that story are not necessarily awe-inspiring, but, but they're dark, you know, they're, uh, they're not the, um, the sort of, uh, the conventional angel that, uh, that are, you know, modern culture, you know, 
how we think of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just always been it's been fun to me. And I I I, I use them in, in several stories. It's more in the uh, second book, but um, I just find a lot of mileage in the idea of of uh, of their arrival, of their presence being uh, being terrifying and being uh, dangerous to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that their uh, their motives, whatever they are, are alien to us, and uh, and maybe you know they don't really give a shit about us one way or the other, and uh, and maybe our idea of heaven is also skewed. Maybe heaven is a is a dark place, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that's just uh, that that you know that was also kind of a fundamental agree- ingredient in that story, and I did I you know as with all these stories, I didn't go in there thinking this is how it's going to be. This is how I will depict the angel. But uh, I went there with that sort of uh, abstract coloring to the angel in my head. And so when it appeared, that sort of organically grew out of it. Uh, it still ends up liberating them, but uh, but in a fairly uh, gruesome fashion. <laughs> An unconventional way. <laughs> I actually uh, wanted to ask, Nathan, um, did you grow up particularly um, – because you've mentioned like religious transcendence a few times. And I was just wondering, did you grow up particularly religious? Like my dad was a preacher. So I think that that thread of former Christian looking for that um, uh, transcendent experience, you know, the dark sublime is, uh, you know, where that comes from in my work. I was just wondering if you kind of uh, came from a, a similar background. Uh, no, actually, a very, very secular family. Um, no really religious underpinnings to my childhood at all. Um, but I've always been fascinated, you know, kind of independently, not with a specific uh, doctrine, a specific uh, religion, but with the idea of transcendence, with the idea of um, just something vast and uh, and beautiful. But again, beautiful uh, hooked to the horrific. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of um, that moment of apprehension, that moment of transcendence being being almost crippling, you know, being something that, that kind of shatters your, your mind because it is, is too much for you to, uh, to apprehend, too much to take on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, just, I just find that a compelling idea that I can't help going back to. But, uh, yeah, no, no religious, no personal religious background to speak of. Oh, that's good. You've got less uh, of that sort of demon dork out of your system. Um, <laughs> the Yeah, what, what you're talking about, I know exactly. Um, there was, I was reading the introduction to um, an anthology of sort of Lovecraft pastiches that was edited by uh, Nick Mamatas. And the word he uh-huh. was the sublime, which is sort of, I mm. think, a perfect way of summing that up, like that that fascination with, you know, this truly horrifying dark wonder, you know, um, beyond human understanding, um, which is like my favorite thing in fiction or film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Totally agreed. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of interesting to hear both of your you know, stories. Cause uh, I feel like I kind of fall halfway between them in a weird way. Cause so I, I grew up in a, my parents were both very religious when I very, very Christian specifically when I was a kid and then they stayed a version of Christian as, as I grew up, but they, um, but they got way more liberal and and more esoteric and, you know, that, that, that thing. And for me, so when I was a kid, they didn't, you know, ever teach me to believe in Santa Claus or whatever, because they wanted me to just believe in like 
the Bible. And I was never very good at that. <laughs> I tr- like, I definitely believe there's something out there ish, but that particular narrative never connected with me. So I kind of grew up in this sort of void where I never believed in anything that gave the world like a magical color to it, you know? And in a weird mm-hmm. way, I've been searching for that sort of feeling in my whole life, which is why I started to, I loved sightings. I loved, you know, horror. I love thinking about, I love reading cosmic horror and cosmic nihilism and creatures that are beyond comprehension. And that's, I think why those things are so important to me because it's like the magical is something I've always been in search of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I'm right there with you, <laughs> Jeff. That is definitely a, you know, something I, I, I think a lot of horror fans uh, have in common with, or fantasy fans for that matter, uh, which I would consider horror's cousin, you know, just wanting to see something real that goes beyond what you see every day, like really looking for something, um, to just confirm there's more to life or existence or the universe. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, it's, uh, it's always fascinating. And that's why I keep returning to it, I guess so much. And then kind of one last question for, uh, for, for Nathan on this, like not last in the scheme of the show, but on, on this topic, Nathan, do you have any particular favorite stories or entities that you've written about? I know you've written quite a few. You know, the, they tend to like shift. There are sometimes, you know, and if, yeah, it depends on what day you ask me. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of favor different ones. Um, I, I'm, I really like, I think the favorite one that I've written from myself is skull pocket because it was a difficult story to write. It was a, uh, it was, I felt like I was spinning a lot of plates with that one. And it was like, unlike anything I'd, tried to do before it was a different tone that i'd ever written before and uh and it was just kind of throwing in all my favorite things it was it was it was uh you know kind of like pulling from a sort of nightmare before christmas aesthetic uh pulling from charles adams um it was uh trying to tell an emotional emotionally serious story while also using fairly you know goofy trappings uh ghoul children and the and going to the fair and um i don't know i feel like it i feel like it mostly works and uh and it's a place where i it's a setting i want to you know i have intentions of revisiting and fleshing out mm-hmm. and uh and so yeah that's probably my favorite gold pocket of uh of wounds is probably my favorite in that compilation there's there's a lot that i really love but but i loved how it sort of uh, it decenters the human experience. I, I guess is how I would put it. And and you don't read a lot that does that. Yeah. You know, the uh, the the impulse for that one was uh, <clears throat> at first it was just going to be the sort of story about the the ghoul children going to the fair and and you know committing bloody mayhem. And it, the idea you know, the the impulse was you know a kids book if the kids if it was written by and for ghouls not for people <laughs> and uh, and everything else sort of kind of grew around that. And, uh, you know, it, the other thing I like about that story was that it was personally liberating. And then I, f- and I felt like it, it successfully, um, decoupled me from the obligation of writing stories that were like the ones in North American Lake Monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, okay, once I put this out there, then this is, you know, this is an, an overt separation. Not that I want to 
distance myself from the stories at all, but that uh, I want to kind of uh, show that I will be writing other kinds of stories, not just those. Uh, that uh, just because um, you know, readers who know who only knew me through those the stories in the first book should not expect to always get that same thing. And uh, it was just, it felt like a, yeah, it just felt liberating. Absolutely. Um, I'm going through wounds for the first time right now. And I'm about, I think halfway through skull pocket and absolutely loving it. So I just wanted to tell you it's working for me at least. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. It doesn't work for everybody, which is totally fair. It's a very, you know, it's a very, it's very much its own thing, and uh, and not everybody digs it. And uh, you know, I, well, you know, I knew that really, going in. You probably aren't doing your job right, right? I hope so. <laughs> I'll tell you uh, t- two um, brief stories. One before I forget uh, to go back to the topic of angels and how heaven could be a sort of darker place. But the last episode I recorded was on biblically accurate angels. Mm. So uh, it's so fascinating because if you get to the the seraphim and the cherubim and the thrones and all these other ones that there's they're in the literature and in angelology, uh, they have like spinning wheels of fire holding up the throne of God with with uh, right. t- dozens and dozens or more of eyes. <laughs> you have like four headed angels. You have six winged angels. They're monsters. They're, they're, <laughs> they're literal monsters. Why did an episode on them? They're totally monstrous. And, <laughs> and we think of these like friendly little, like I'm here to m- tell you, get over that girl and save you. From your <laughs> right. Like you have things that are like that. Lovecraft would get nightmares over in, in the actual folklore. Exactly. So- They're so interesting. They're so scary. They're so, they're so much more, you know, engaging in every level. Uh, than the sort of these generic, you know, little cherubs that we we have in our coffee mugs. Oh, I know. It's like we, speaking of cherubs, you know, we think we think Cupid, you know, when we think uh, the cherubim, but no, like they're terrifying. <laughs> 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 they're fat babies with like little harmless bows and arrows that make us fall in love. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then the other little side story. Um, uh, and, and forgive me, uh, listeners at home, if you don't care about this, but I'll share it with you too, because I like you. Um, uh, I just wanted to tell you, cause I have you, uh, right now. I, I love wounds, but I made a tactical error when I first read it. Uh, so I picked it up for, for, I was really looking forward to it. And I picked it up when I was going, um, to cover fantastic fest in Austin, Texas in 2019. And so mm-hmm. it was my it was my on the road, you know, flight reading. And I was reading Skull Pocket. My my Airbnb looked it was it was so many places were booked up and I, I booked at the last minute because I was just I didn't time it right. And um it was cheap, but it wasn't what was advertised. It was like this they had taken like a living room and they just pinned a blanket, like ran it across clotheslines. And so there wasn't like a room really. There was like no wall and you could hear everything. And there were other mysterious people staying in some of the room rooms and you don't have like locks or anything. It was, it was a very creepy place to stay. And so 
wounds and like skull pocket was like the first thing I read. And so like, that was my late night reading after a day of watching horror movies <laughs> in this place that I realized after day two shouldn't have stayed in. And then, <laughs> and then uh, halfway through my suspicions were confirmed when the landlord shoved under the de- under the door, an eviction notice for whoever owned the place. <laughs> and oh my God. On my phone somewhere. I'm not making this up. <laughs> such a terrible place to read, like such scary stories in some instances. But I survived. <laughs> I didn't get murdered, or or maybe I did, and this is a much weirder podcast situation than you intended. <laughs> I think I'm okay. I just had to share that with you because it was such a surreal experience at the time. Um, but you were going to mention one other thing before I started talking about skull pocket and, and interrupted you was, do you remember what that was? Oh, uh, you have a story that I, that, that, you know, most stories I go back and look at and I just, I think like most writers, you go back and look at what you've written and all you can see are the, are the problems. Uh, uh, and this is true for skull pocket and, uh, and this one too, uh, wild acres, one that, uh, that I think, um, that I think worked, just the way I wanted it to work. Uh, most stories, they're 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 kind of close, uh, but you know uh, they're never exactly what you have in your head. But Wild Acre is pretty close to what I had in my head, and I think the ending, uh, I still feel satisfied by how it landed, and uh, and so that's another one that I'm, you know, is a personal favorite. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I always try and uh, kind of dig in to or more uh, like, like like deep philosophical or, or sort of um, thematic types of issues, at least some on the show. And, and we've danced around uh, some of them already, which is wonderful, but I wanted to kind of return to something that you, you both talked about a little bit. Uh, both of you mentioned having a, a, a sort of love for, for uh, cosmic nihilism. And I kind of wanted to know to get both of you relatively your the, the sort of what that means to you and, and sort of why. Um, maybe Sean start. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess for me, coming from a background where that it was it was a little bit like yours, Jeff, in terms of it started way more religious than it ended up. Except I was a believer um, and pretty, you know involved at a young age. Um, and I think that what I, the, the hardest thing for me as I got older and sort of put the faith uh, aside was I never believed in heaven, but I, I really believed in hell, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, that, that was what kept me in line for so long. And so this idea that none of it matters that there's not a great plan that it's all an accident nothing um is intentional you know in terms of the cosmic design then all that you know then really all that matters are the choices we make and you know the connections that we forge while we're here and um to me that was that's an enormously liberating thought because that means that you know i'm not accountable to some sky bully, you know, <laughs> uh, essentially that. So to me, there's something deeply romantic about it too, because it means that when you choose to, you know, spend your life with somebody or, you know, uh, or, or have a family or be friends with people, you know, you're really, 
making a choice that's not based on like, I don't know, it somehow makes it more romantic or more compelling because it's a choice made in the face of like overwhelming nothingness beyond, you know what I mean? If that makes sense. I, I feel I actually, like that totally makes sense to me. Cause I, um, for me, like I, I never really did the whole group identification, like in high school, you know, you'd have people being at pep rallies like, Oh, our team won. We won. Yay. And I was always just the one sitting in the back being like, wait, we, <laughs> like, I, I don't know anyone on the team and I wasn't on the team. And so I've always felt that way. I've also felt, felt that way about like relationships, et cetera, too. Uh, like for me, if someone is in my life, it's because I choose to have them in my life. It's not because I feel some familial or religious or some other kind of obligation. It's just like, oh, but which is strange to some people and scary to some people. But for me, it's like, no, when I actually choose to have you in my life, it actually means something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think that was sort of one of the, the, at least for me, I don't know whether it actually comes out, but one of the main underpinnings of cosmology is sort of about that sort of senselessness, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, you know, to you at least. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, what, what about for you, Nathan? Uh, <clears throat> it's a little bit different. I don't think of it as, as nihilism. I think of it as, uh, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I think um, it, 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 it reassures me to think that that uh, that the harm that we do, and I think that we do so much harm as a species, is contained uh, <clears throat> on this planet uh, and in our time. I think um, you know. I when I start feeling you know despair or feel overwhelmed by uh, environmental news. Uh, it's when I go outside at night and, and look at the stars, I feel this sense of relief that we're, we are, we are so small and that the universe is, is so much bigger than us. And there's so much out there that we cannot mess up. Um, uh, you know, I'll think of these, these, uh, you know, these pristine landscapes on the moons of Saturn or, you know, on Pluto It's like, we'll never fuck that up. <laughs> and, uh, and it reassures me, it reassures me that the mess we've made is so, tiny in comparison and uh and also uh that once we leave this earth uh that uh it will eventually come back uh maybe in a different way but uh but we'll be forgotten um you know in a sort of in a sort of geological uh sense mm -hmm. and uh and that kind of that kind of indifference uh i find very peaceful and very reassuring and uh you know whatever whatever small uh you know, uh, distress I'm feeling, uh, well, it feels big at the time, but it is actually infinitesimally small. And, uh, and that's, that's comforting to me. That's so interesting. Yeah, I know. I, I, I feel, um, I like the notion that, cause for me, uh, the, the ecological issues, for example, are, are, are very important, but also the, it's so easy to feel individually powerlessness in the, the wake of particular social structures. And I wouldn't say that I do feel powerless, but I would say that like social structures being what they are, are so um, upheld by so many different aspects and people and persist for so long. It's, it's kind of refreshing to think about it in this larger scheme of things, how like, Oh, well, all these things are unjust, but in the scheme of things, they too shall pass. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And if and if aliens ever come down to judge us or or extra dimensional entities or what have you, um, my one thing that I'm banking on uh, being last on the extraterrestrial like uh, menu is I feel like I'm really good in with my dogs. <laughs> and they would make that like inner species like these ones are cool they're cool they're fine i'm really banking on that yeah and my dogs are cute i feel like they'd bridge those barriers you know <laughs> no that's so that's so thought-provoking another thing that i w- wanted to ask is is that I, I feel like monster movies and reading about monsters always had like has always had an audience but in terms of the the, the widespread popularity of the audience, it you know, waxes and wanes like all things. And I feel like in the last, you know, decade plus years, there's big been a big popular level resurgence in film, television, and literature. And I wanted to know if, if you both uh, agree and, and if you do or don't, why? like what your thoughts are, broadly speaking. So maybe, um, what about you, Sean? I mean, I, I, I would agree with that, uh, broadly speaking. I, I think that, um, like you said, it's cyclical. And I think that the last few uh, years in particular uh, have provided very fertile ground for uh, nightmares to be made manifest in the mainstream. You know, uh, the same way you have sort of this wave of amazing uh horror movies in the seventies, you know, when America is going through a different sort of crisis, you know, um, I, I think we're seeing something similar here and, and what's really exciting about it is also seeing so many, uh, previously marginalized voices, um, you know, uh, able to actually tell their stories, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and really put things in perspective for, for the world in a way that we haven't seen before. So, Absolutely. It does seem to be having a moment. Um, you know, I, I think I, I probably when I started writing the book in 2014, I was probably picking up on that, too. You know, it wasn't intentional, but I locked into kind of that wave of um, of stuff that's coming down the pipe. So yeah. Yeah. What about you, Nathan? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's clearly having a moment uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit longer than a moment. It's going on for uh, <clears throat> Who's going on for you know a good bit of time, and I think that's partly due, uh, as conventional wisdom has it, that uh, when we are going through times of political turmoil, that uh, mm-hmm. that uh, people turn to horror fiction because it's it can be cathartic uh, and it can help sort of contextualize things. But I think too that um, that society is just undergoing these seismic changes, you know, uh, in a way that is not specifically tied to politics, uh, or at least not exclusively. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it's bewildering and I think it's, uh, it's destabilizing, uh, our sense of ourselves. And, um, and so the monstrous, uh, I don't think it seems as fantastical as it normally does. I think it seems, real you know i think it seems like reality itself you know it's we don't have a we don't have a consensus reality right now we have we have various various populations which have their own idea of what is truth and there is no consensus we are literally living in different realities and uh and it's just what a 
what an awful and frightening and uh, earthquake kind of feeling that is. And uh, it's, it's, uh, I think, I think, you know, the language of monsters is the way that we, we talk about this because mm-hmm. I feel like that's the way the world is speaking. The world is speaking in the language of monsters right now. And so uh, it's the most natural thing in the world to, uh, to write about it, to read about it and to respond to it. Yeah, I, I, I definitely would agree with that. I, I feel like because there's as, as a, as a construct to carry meaning, monsters are so, so malleable and complex that you can really uh, you can really use them to hone in on all so- and express all sorts of concerns and reflect all sorts of issues um, more than so many different elements that you could put in in into a work of fiction. Uh, it kind of reminds me of mm-hmm. like, uh, the, there's this the, the social theorist Antonio Gramsci has this quote. Uh, I had to look it up for a second to to make sure I got it right. But the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Yes. And I really think there's a sentence truer than that right now. <laughs> I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's in, and this is something I've always thought about regarding horror fiction in general, but it feels especially true now. And that I think, I think horror fiction, uh, you know, speaks to a kind of truth that other kinds of fiction uh, don't, or at least it accesses it in a way that other kinds of fiction don't. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when I'm, uh, you know, horror fiction is even when, or especially when it's bleak and unrelenting, mm-hmm. it feels truer than, uh, than something that is based completely in reality or in realism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I feel that even more now, you know, if I, when I read something that uh, that is based in realism, uh, a realist piece of fiction, it, it seems that seems the construct, right? I, I, you know, I, I, that seems more of a construct than something that has, you know, uh, beasts shouldering through the world. It's uh, you know, the monsters seem more honest right now. It's uh, it's so interesting to me because if you look at, um, I mean, there's there's so much of a, a market still for also apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic you know, fiction right now and uh, at the same time. And I, I think part of the reason for these trends is because especially with with younger generations, there's all these social issues that are just building in menace, if you will. And, you know, those of us who know what, what actual facts are can watch them coming like a slow-moving inevitable bullet, right? And mm-hmm. there has to be some way to find the language to express and to, to to take those fears of such a massive scale and make them, you know, intellectually malleable and something you can actually discuss even. Absolutely. The one kind of thing that I, I, I want to end on something maybe like a little bit more mundane. Uh, I wanted to ask you both about like as writers about your writing process. Maybe Sean start this one. Sure. Um, my process is actually sort of undergoing uh, an evolution right now. Historically, it's uh, been, I've treated it very preciously, like, um, and I, it's kind of hard to describe, Uh, you know, it was very ritualistic in terms of I used a certain type of pen on a certain type of paper 
two hours at the page every day. Um, you know, and yeah. you go onto a computer until the entire first draft was done. And um, in the edits for cosmology, I had to get a lot less precious with um, because you know you're switching out scenes, you're you're you know deleting or re-adding entire plot lines. So obviously, like a lot of that is happening at the computer and requires like flexible thinking. And um, so, you know, it, what I'm finding now is um, I'm still writing every day, but um, I'm mostly doing it on the computer for the first time in my life and um, moving more quickly than usual too, uh, because uh, I used to get discouraged very easily. It's part of uh, what made it so hard to, you know, follow up cosmology was, I put everything I had into that book while I was writing it and I felt dry as a bone after, you know, I didn't feel like, Oh, I know what comes next. Um, and, and because I was comparing this finished book against, you know, a kernel of an idea, uh, of course that kernel couldn't stand up to, you know, the, the same scrutiny as a finished novel. So I wasn't even giving these things a chance. Um, mm. so I, I've, I've had to get looser with it and to, uh, the writer Matt Bell said something on Twitter a few weeks ago that really uh, struck home with me, which is that he said some, I'm probably going to misphrase it, that his attention, his continued attention to a project does more to make it good than the days that feel good or the days that feel bad. Like when you go, when you go back, you can't tell which were the good or bad days. Like you just see what's working and what's not. And some of it may have been written on a bad day and some of it may have been written on a good day. And I, always knew that intellectually, but I feel like I'm just getting it through my skull, like, or in my heart for the first time. So I'm, I'm hoping that that means I'll be a little more productive here on so we won't have to wait, uh, you know, a, another four years for me to finish a book. <laughs> yeah, I'm very uh, uh, sympathetic with that because I'm, I'm also similarly a, a bit of a perfectionist in my own projects. And I take them so uh, personally and, and in my case, like delicately that I, I, I agonize over if I make enough progress, the choices that I'm making, et cetera. And I, I, it's, it's so nice to hear people find their own way to get through taking those things so heavily. Yeah. Learning, learning how to roll with that, I think is the number one uh, thing that I think any writer has to, to learn because uh, another thing, Matt, if you're, if your listeners aren't already following Matt Bell, they should be because he just drops kernels of writing wisdom pretty much every day. Um, cool. Talked about Great. the amount of bad writing you have to do to get to the good writing and that it just doesn't change, you know, that you've still got to do the bad stuff, or at least in his experience. And that I would say that's reflected in mine. Nathan's may be entirely different. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. It's uh, in that first thing you paraphrased from him uh, that, you know, struck a note with me too. It's like, a, I hadn't thought about it objectively, but hearing it, it's like, ah, oh, yes, that's, that's very true. Yeah. So, um, so what, what's your process like these days, Nathan? Uh, I feel like it's also, uh, going through an evolution, but I feel like maybe it always is. I, uh, uh, I tend to be somebody who, uh, uh, I'm trying to cultivate a better sense of discipline than I've had. My, my weakness as a writer, uh, one of them anyway, is that uh, I'm slow. And it's frustrating because I have probably like 15 to 20 ideas that I'm excited about and can't wait to get into the world. But uh, I'm just very uh, 
I have been undisciplined in the way that I approach them. And uh, part of that is uh, that I need to think about it for a while to kind of like get a sense of it before I go in. And part of it is just that I am, uh, again, I'm, this is not, this is not uh, anything special to me. I think a lot of writers have this, but it's just like a paralyzing self-doubt uh, and, and paralyzing uh, almost literally. Like uh, I've, I've lost months before not writing anything only because I just couldn't bear the garbage that was coming out <laughs> onto the page. And, uh, and the evolution that I'm going through myself is, or at least the, you know, the growing process I'm trying to get through is uh, is ignoring it, uh, or at least accepting it, if not ignoring it. And um, uh, part of something that you know that's happened since the uh, since the last book has come out is that I've you know some opportunities have come up thanks to the the uh, you know the movie and the show that all of a sudden I find myself with a lot of deadlines and a lot of work to do, and uh, and that's. It's good because in some some days it's overwhelming and I, I just want to freeze. Uh, and and there are on bad days I do freeze. Uh, but the good thing about it is that there's just no time to be, you know, to be stuck in my own head. There's no time to say, you know, I can't bear to write the bad, you know, the the, the crap today. I, I need to just it has to be good now because it's due so soon. And uh, that's a completely self-defeating way to think. And um you know, over the past few months, I've, I think I'm finally understanding that on a, on a deeper level than just the surface. And, um, yeah. Process. I don't know. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out all these years in. Hey, that's fair. Um, it's so, uh, I, I really like, uh, I really enjoy talking to you about this issue too, because, uh, I mean, as you know, Nathan, cause I actually messaged you out of the blue one day about it. Um, for me, writing has been a bit of a mixed bag because uh, when it comes to writing fiction, at least, because there's no immediate, I don't know, professional financial payoff. I'm well aware of all the ways it could go nowhere, all this, even though I enjoy it and I know that I'm confident in what the ideas are. I have, for a long time, I had a lot of um, guilt over pursuing it that didn't really come from I think it was just because I was raised to make all these decisions on a purely practical basis and over time I learned Mm -hmm. that that didn't work for me and that wasn't making me happy so then I you know I I was in grad school to be professor and I realized like oh I don't want to do that I don't want that to be my life not that it's not noble but it's not for me um and so I dropped out of grad school and it still was paralyzing for a long time because I'm like, oh, well, I can sit down and I can, you know, write articles and do all these other things. Right, right, right. But not stuff just for me for a long time. And it's only recently that I've been able to get over feeling a little bit inhibited in that area, ironically, by doing this podcast, because I started it because I felt like there, well, one, I thought it's quarantine. Everything shut down. I have time and equipment and it would be interesting. And I could probably, you know, with any luck, get interesting people to talk to who might also have time. But then in doing it and and really focusing on it, it's actually helped me turn that belief set around as a writer because I realized like, oh, I'm basically doing this because it's just something that I love to do. And 
I'm doing it because like I only invite people on because I think that the topics are great and because I think they're great and I'm very picky and choosy. And so it's really just all me narcissistically doing things that I think are cool for its own sake. And, and I've had a lot of luck so far on that being reinforced as like, Oh, that's not a bad idea. That's a cool way to live a life. <laughs> it's been very helpful in my writing in a roundabout way. So I had to almost do something else to come back to it, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting you say that. I Just one, one thing I guess I could add to that is it, for me, it was almost the exact opposite. When I got to grad school in my MFA program, when writing suddenly became the job instead of the thing I was kind of doing on nights and weekends just because it was fun. Uh, it was really paralyzing once it became sort of a practical, there's a grade attached to this. This is uh, everyone watching now instead of like, oh yeah, I'm doing this and nobody knows about it, you know? Uh, yeah. And that, that took some time to, right. to get past yeah. as well. I, the biggest obstacle I think to the creative life is just the creative mindset probably. <laughs> just that neuroticism that seems to be baked into us. But at least it's it's at least it's that way for almost everyone. Yeah. Well, uh, at that, um, I feel like uh, it'd be a perfect time to wrap up. But I would like to first extend a special thank you to both uh, Nathan and Sean for appearing in today's episode. Fans of the show can find us on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive, on Spotify, uh, iTunes, Google, or Podbean. To both of you, Sean and Nathan, where can our listeners uh, find your work? And is there anything you would like to uh, pitch that you have coming up? Um, maybe Nathan, you first. Uh, they can find, well, the, the two books we mentioned, North American Lake Monsters and Wounds, are uh, are the ones that are out now. I've got a novel called The Strange, which is in edits right now. Uh, probably, it should be appearing awesome. uh, next year, so that's a little, a little ways off. Um. And they can find me on all the usual spots, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, just put in Ballingrude and uh, I'm, there aren't, there aren't a lot to choose from. So uh, you'll find me pretty quickly that way. Perfect. How about you, Sean? Yeah, I've, I've only got the one novel right now, Cosmology of Monsters. It's out in paperback. Um, and you can get it, you know, pretty much anywhere you like to buy books. Although I'd encourage you to get it from your local indie if you can. Mm -hmm. Um and it, I, I guess if you've already read Cosmology and haven't checked it out yet, I was uh, lucky enough to have a short story in Tor Nightfire's audio anthology uh, that was released uh, around Halloween called Come Join Us by the Fire Season 2, uh, my story, Music of the Abyss, which is uh, the last of my Lovecraft rifts for the time being uh, is included there. And I think it's... It's on Google Play right now, but I think that in February it's going to be on uh, all the major streaming platforms like Spotify or iTunes. Um, and there's also going to be an ebook version of it. So um, yeah, check that out, and hopefully I'll have uh, you know an, I, I'm I'm finishing a new novel right now, so hopefully I'll have more to report on that soon. Uh, wonderful. Thank you both so much for for stopping by the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. This is a fun conversation. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of recorded human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. 
Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization, the need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive.